horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the weather's clear, can do, can do, this guy says the horse can do, if he says the horse can do. This is Bill Duncliffe. I want to welcome you back to Season 5 of the Can Do Podcast, where the heroes in history and some hijinks of horse racing come alive. The year 2020, let's face it, is going to be remembered for a lot of things. To date, none of them very good. Raging virus, political and social unrest, killer hornets, you name it. In that vast scheme of things, the upset to the traditional sporting calendars not only seems, but is, hardly of any import. At the same time, sport has always served as a welcome distraction to everything from the humdrum of the workaday world to the stress of political and social unrest. For us fans of horse racing, the calendar upset came early in 2020. On St. Patrick's Day, Churchill Downs unilaterally announced that the signature event of our sport, the Kentucky Derby, would be postponed until September 5th. Forced to adjust to that uncoordinated announcement, the Maryland Jockey Club and the New York Racing Association had to consider not only their own calendars, but also the trajectory of the pandemic in timing the dates of their signature races, the Preakness and the Belmont Stakes. So, we're left with a situation where a race like the Jim Dandy, a traditional prep for the Midsummer Derby, or Traverse Stakes, which is normally a test of that year's Triple Crown veterans as well as late-blooming three-year-olds, instead took place on the same day as the Kentucky Derby. And of course, the Belmont Stakes was the first leg of the Triple Crown. Following a 10-week lag, the Kentucky Derby was contested with the final leg of this year's Triple Crown, the Preakness, fast approaching on the first Saturday in October. You got all that? Debate has flared frequently among followers of our sport whether or not were a horse able to sweep all three events this year, however disjointed, would be a true Triple Crown champion. Actual results aside, the debate merely points to the love of tradition that forms one of the core elements of our sport's fandom. Tradition tells us that the first Triple Crown winner was Sir Barton, way back in 1919. Tradition has it right in some ways, but in many ways it doesn't. For as you will hear, the Triple Crown was not even recognized as a thing until some time later. That and many other fascinating stories came out of my discussion with Jennifer Kelly, horse racing historian and author of the terrific read, Sir Barton and the Making of the Triple Crown. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this flight through not only the birth of a glorious tradition in our sport, but a time a century ago, a mere blip in the sands of time, so very different from our own. I know I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. We first talked about how Jennifer embarked on this interesting career trajectory from her home state of Alabama and what compelled her to write this book. So, uh, Jennifer, you mentioned that you are in Alabama, uh, which is not, you know, since the demise of the Birmingham Turf Club, but it's not really a hotbed of horse racing, right? So how did you first become interested in horse racing? Um, It's a... It's a neat little story because it was completely not at all what you would have expected for someone where I grew up because we didn't know anyone who owned horses. And I don't think I ever saw a horse up close until I was a teenager because my my parents and friends who took pity on me and let me go riding with them. Um, But I discovered horse racing through the Black Stallion. I had a teacher in elementary school. Mm who read The Black Stallion to us, Um, and then after that first book, I started picking up the rest of the books, and then this was about the time that uh, video rental stores became a thing, 
And so I would, you know, talk my mother into driving me to the video store so I could use my allowance to rent the Black Stallion. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I found myself, you know, in love with the sport through that medium. And then I happened to catch horse racing on television somewhere in that area. And I think it's the Breeders' Cup, but I can't tell you for sure because mm-hmm. it's so fuzzy in my memory, but I had a day where my dad and my brother were out, and so I had the TV to myself. My mom was, you know, doing other things in the house, and and I was just flipping channels and happened to catch, you know, racing on television and just was mesmerized. So ever since then, and this is about age 10 or 11, ever since then, I've just been entranced by the sport. Oh, that's great. You know, uh, for our younger listeners out there, well, I'll have a separate show where we explain what a video rental store was. But, uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> so it's uh, maybe I'm wrong about this, but it sounds like that teacher who read The Black Stallion to you was maybe one of the influences in your life that made you decide you wanted to be an author, too. Well, that was a natural progression from having been an early reader and then having read voraciously as a child, and then as I got into, you know, middle school and high school and then uh, undergraduate work, I gravitated toward writing and had initially wanted to be a journalist, and then once I got into my undergraduate uh, studies, I discovered that I would rather teach writing than actually be a journalist, not because journalism was not a a viable career, just that I had had so many challenges growing up and, you know, writing and where I went to school and I understood what my students who were coming in uh, from different types of public schools, the education they weren't getting. And so I wanted to be the, the instructor that, you know, helped catch them up because I had been such a good writer and had always shown such, you know, a talent for it without really thinking about it. It was just something I did, but all my teachers and, you know, my parents were like, this is something you should do, but, you know, teachers wanted me to be like a teacher, and my parents wanted me to be a lawyer, and I was over here like, I just want to write about horses. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they say if you you do what you love, you never work a day in your life, right? So um... that's... That's very true. So, you know, contrast that with now because I've, you know, I tell people I was at Ashford Stud doing a tour with, you know, to visit American Pharaoh and Justify. And I was talking about, like, you know, I had my book with me and, and a woman said, she's like, who is that? And I was like, that's the first Triple Crown winner. And she's like, oh, you know, like he, she had no idea that Sir Barton, who Sir Barton was. And like, Aren't you here to see American Pharaoh? Like, <laughs> just a little bit of work there. You might have come up with that one. Yeah, like, you know, yeah. Pharaoh yeah. didn't get here by himself. Like other horses had to do it first. But that's just how it is. Hey, just to go back, Jennifer. So you know, you obviously were interested in being an author, um, helping you know others, and you know how to communicate. What and you loved horse racing, but what made you take a particular interest in Sir Barton that? you know, made you kind of dive back that far and dive that deeply into the history of, of that time? Well, this is 2013 when I came up with the idea to do this, and my husband and I had been discussing what we would do if we weren't doing what we were doing at that particular moment. Because 
both of us were in our, you know, we were in our late 30s, early 40s, and we have children, and we were like, okay, well, if we weren't doing this, what would we be doing instead? And at that point, I'd been teaching college, like, writing classes. So I've been working on other people's writing for a long time, and I was just starting to feel like, you know, I really want to spend some time doing my own work because I haven't really been able to focus on that. And so my husband and I were talking about, all right, well, if you were to switch to writing full-time, what would you work on? It's like, well, I don't work on horse racing. Um, (laughs) And I was telling him all these different stories that I thought were, you know, would make a great book. Because, I mean, he had gone to see Seabiscuit with me. Okay. He had not read the book, but he saw the movie with me, so he knew how much I, you know, enjoyed that kind of thing. And I told him about Sir Barton, and he he said, well, has anyone done a book on that horse? And I thought, well, I don't, I don't think so because I, I've never seen one. And, you know, I, I started doing a deep dive over the next day to just really explore, like, what was out there in terms of access to his story and discovered that, you know, you can find a number of books on Triple Crown winners, and each of them will have a chapter that, is about each Triple Crown winner. Mm-hmm. So here's the Lucky 13, here's, you know, the Most Glorious Crown, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you get a chapter, 15 or 20 pages, and it tells you the highlights of that horse's career, but it doesn't ever tell you the, the, the nitty-gritty that went into. So I thought, well, if no one else has done this, why not try it and see if I can do it? And so at this point, this is, summer of 2013 and I started doing research to start writing and it took me about a year I think or so to really get into the nitty-gritty of of writing I I did my first draft and I think my first draft was about 60 pages and that was without um, like newspapers it was just me in the daily racing form and maybe a couple of other sources so if I had 60 pages, which was, you know, I don't, I don't remember how many thousand words it was, I thought, well, if I can get that out of just this minimal amount of research, then once I start adding in more and more research, then I, and that was only his racing. That was not even covering all the other milestones outside of his racing. So that was when I thought, okay, well, I have something viable, so I started I started, you know, writing full time. I basically quit my job <laughs> in 2014 and, and, and just started writing the book. Mm-hmm. Those who follow our sport today know that, unlike their predecessors, today's equine athletes run much less frequently. Those are not the only differences for which today's horses and today's sport of horse racing differ from their forebears, however. Your book, i, I got to say, um, you know, our podcast is all about horse racing history, and I, I'm, I'm fascinated by all eras of history of the sport, but particularly going back to those, you know, early days of the the 1900s, how different racing <laughs> was then from what it is today. You know, the, they would race three or four days apart, incredible yeah. weight imposts. Uh, tell us a little bit about the differences, if you don't mind, between those days and, and today. Well, the way that we approach training and and, you know, caring for our horses is a contrast to what they did. Um, now, with such a focus on breeding, 
spend so much more money in breeding. It's that, you know, you find yourself with horses that are making fewer starts and being prepared for the breeding shed more than anything else. Whereas this was the flip side in the first part of the 20th century. This is before the starting gate. So it's very old school. There's, you know, we stand at the line, you wait for the barrier to fly up, and then everybody goes. And there's not a not a photo finish camera. So every time there was a photo, there's a close finish. It was, you know, three guys standing in the judge's stand telling you who won. Oh, dear God. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine what those discussions were oh, like. Boy. It's a very interesting uh, dynamic. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, you know, you would have horses who would make starts, more than one start within a week even. Um, I, Sir Barton famously won the Derby on May 10th and then won um, the Preakness on May 14th. I wrote an article recently about uh, the gelding Romer, and Romer would do similar things. He would run a race, like, you know, on a Monday, and then by Friday or Saturday he would be in a stakes race. And, you know, he might win both in the same week. Yeah. Um, I'm working on Gallant Fox in Omaha. And which which one, who was the supposed rival for Gallant Fox in the Belmont, actually won a minor stakes race. And then three days later won the Withers. And then a week later ran in the Belmont. <laughs> so it's a very different mindset about, what horses were capable of and what you know you should do with a horse like how often you should race but the money was more in the racing than it was in 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 the breeding and you know the regulations about you know the types of things you could give your horses and stuff like that it was just a different world we didn't know as much as we know now we, we didn't have the same, like, when I was working on Romer, because he was a gelding, they pretty much just raced him until he couldn't race anymore. And the same with Old Rosebud. Because they were geldings, they didn't have any options once they were oh, done right. racing. Right. So they literally raced them until they just couldn't race anymore. And to the point where Old Rosebud broke down, I think, in his 10th season of racing. Oh, my gosh. Because... You know, and he had run probably upwards of 100 starts and just and had 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 several major injuries that had required time off and then broke down after stepping in a hole during a workout at the age of nine, somewhere in there. So it's just, you know, you, there's no aftercare like old friends yeah. Yeah. or any of our rehoming options now. You know, breeding is, you know, maybe $500, $1,000 per cover, that kind of thing. So it's, it's very much like if you look at 100 years ago versus now, you can see the difference that technology has made in how we care for our horses and how we regard horses. Because even now, since we don't see them in, from day to day like we, that, like we would have 100 years ago, our attitudes about the way horses should be treated are a little different. No, that's a, that's a good point. There's 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 good and bad in it, right? We would all, I think, like to see these horses race more, but the the breeding, as you said, the money from the breeding has really kind of impacted that. But at the same time, these programs like Old Friends and other aftercare programs did not exist, um, and 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 that's and that's a real plus, obviously. To this observer, today's world can at times seem very homogenized. 
One of the things I love about reading a history like this, any history really, is the backgrounds and life stories of the peoples of a time that seem nearly unimaginable to us today. You know, one of the things I was struck by is someone who's attended the Hopeful several times in my life on closing day at Saratoga was in Sir Barton's two-year-old year. There were 16 horses entered in that race, which now they would run that in two divisions. They wouldn't even, I don't even yes. think they have a starting gate for 16 horses in that race. No, right? Well, can you imagine getting 16 horses to no. line up? No. On a line, yeah. and and in and be standing still long enough to have the little webbed barrier go up, and then get them all off. Right. And right. you know, it's it's like when I was writing the book, and Sir Martin had this really sad little race, and the hopeful, like, well, I mean, there were sixteen horses, it's like mm-hmm. you know, sixteen horses over six furlongs, like. You know, Can you imagine it's, it's the cavalry charge? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Try and weave your way through that crowd, you know, if you don't exactly. get a good start, right? Yeah, yeah. Sir Barton came along in what was obviously a different time, as you will hear, but also at a needed time for a world still recovering from the Great War, which no one then called the First World War, seeing as repeating such a tragedy seemed unimaginable. He came around at an interesting time, right? The the First World War had ended, and, and as you described, I think, really nicely in the book, the world just kind of wanted to breathe again. And, and so from that standpoint, it was uh, very fortunate for him to come around. And he also had the misfortune of coming around just before <laughs> yeah. another horse who uh, kind of began to dominate the headlines, right? Yeah, it's, I, I was um, working on the book I'm, I'm doing next, and I found a line from Grantland Rice that said that, you know, Sir Barton came along and then man of war came along right after him and just took all the racing fame out of the <laughs> out of out of the world and and basically just you know Porter Barton who knows what he could have done had he not come along when you know right before man of war did yeah yeah you know, it was a it was a lot it was called a golden age of racing and i think we've had more than one golden age of racing just depending on what generation you're in but you know in this era it's I think people like to romanticize it because of Man of War, but it was a, it was really where we gave birth to so many of the things that we consider traditions. So it's where the, the Kentucky Derby, this is the era where the Derby starts becoming an event. Yeah. And it's the era where the Triple Crown starts forming as a worthwhile pursuit in people's minds. You know, and this is a transitional moment where we're we're leaving the immediate post antebellum, you know, Civil War era. We've had the Great War, and now we're being pushed into a new technological age. And so, you know, this is really like the last bastion of there's no radio, there's no television, there's no starting gate. So all your, you know, information comes from a newspaper. And then, you know, if you happen to be there and lucky enough to witness it. So Sir Barton's reputation depends so much on how he's discussed in turf writing. And so that was where I had to focus a lot of my attention on how people regarded him with how turf writers regarded him. As we discussed earlier, the horse racing world, including the lead up to an even then prestigious event like the Kentucky Derby, was very different then versus the way it is now. And that also includes her sister Preakness and Belmont Stakes events. Not only the timing, but the recognition of their import, which came much later. It was, um, it, it was interesting. We talked about, you know, 
first of all, like the, the Kentucky Derby, you know, you think of the Kentucky Derby today and we think about prep races, victories and graded stakes and 126 pounds on the first Saturday in May. Uh, none of that applied to Sir Barton. He was a maiden. Uh, oh, no. I think it was on a, what was the race one on a, a Wednesday, I think. Was that right? It was a, it was a Saturday. And oh, then it was a Saturday. The, uh, okay. Okay. And then the, um, <clears throat> the Preakness was the following Wednesday. Okay. So All that's right. an interesting con. Like, how do you run a Preakness on a Wednesday? <laughs> yeah, that <know>. was really <laughs> kind of eye opening. Yeah. He, <clears throat> he, he initially, he made six starts, and his last start was in 1918 at the age of two, was in September, Belmont, and the future at that point was the race that kind of made your reputation. Right. If you're going to be the two-year-old champion, you really kind of needed to win that race. And he made that start, and he was supposed to have run after that. Like, they had other starts lined up for him, especially since they were based in Maryland. They were going to, you know, run at, Laurel and Pimlico, they they usually have, like, October, November meet. They were planning on starting him in some states races there. But he, um, one morning they were all out on the track for a workout, and another horse kicked him, and Sir Barton got a cut on his stifle. Uh, the cut got septic, and he came down with a really terrible case of blood poisoning. He almost died. So once he recovered, they decided that they weren't going to run him again in 1918 because he just wasn't physically fit enough for that. So all those stakes races and whatnot that they had planned for um, his two-year-old season just went out the window. And and H.G. Bedwell even said, like, he anticipated that Sir Barton would have broken his maiden had he been able to continue racing at, at two. But they just, you know, once he had recovered from his illness, there was just no way they could race him. Now... Logic would tell you, well, if your horse hasn't run since September and the Derby is in May, that's about a nine-month gap, eight or nine-month gap. Why, you know, wouldn't you start him in a race in between? <laughs> you know, like why? Why? Did, I don't know why they didn't put him in a race. I don't know if it's just they were unsure about his physical condition, if they just were content with training him. I mean, I don't know exactly. There was never a good reason why they didn't put him in any races prior to the Derby. I think it's because they were just kind of like, well, you know, we feel like he's valuable. We don't want to take too many risks after having this terrible illness. So let's just kind of keep an eye on him. But he kept turning in workouts that made everyone take notice. So they shipped him to Louisville for the Derby anyway. But, you know, it's definitely not now where you know you're nadal or you know <laughs> yeah. or some other or tisla or someone and you're having to build up like 100 points to get to even like smell the, the starting gate at churchill downs let alone actually walk into it so it's it's a i don't know how i don't know how i don't know how we got to this point <laughs> how we got to the point where you you have to limit it to 20 horses because i kept looking back i'm like how is it that, you know, Gallant Fox had this many horses and, like, Affirmed had this many horses and then Seattle, like, a Sunday Silence with this and, you know, and into the 90s. And then all of a sudden in 2013, like, everybody and their grandmother wants to run in the Derby. It's unheard of. No one runs 20 horses in a race in the United States except the Derby. Like, nobody. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, your point is well taken, too. Uh, under the current point system, Sir Barton would not even have made the starting gate. He was a maiden. So, you know. No, they would have been forced to, they would have been forced to race him. 
Yeah. Oh, there you go. So yeah, that he right. could have yeah. qualified. Yeah. Yep. So yep. they would have been forced to, you know, find the right spots. Which is, I mean, that's logical that you would, as a trainer, plan out. Okay, here's our goal. Mm-hmm. And we need to. So I, the fact that he didn't race before that, like I, I mean, I, like I said, I don't really know exactly what the reasoning was behind it. You know, Bill, Billy Kelly made two or three starts before. You know, right. They, he they had, went to, yeah, he to had been the star of the barn up to that point, right? The gelding uh, Billy Kelly. Yes, he had been. He he had been um, competitive for the two year old championship, and and I like to talk about the match race between Eternal and Billy Kelly because you know it seems inconsequential to Sir Barton winning the Derby, but mm-hmm. without that match race, without Billy Kelly losing the match race, you know there's this um, series of events that wouldn't have taken place. And it might have been that Sir Martin actually didn't go to Louisville because of it. Mm. You know, mm. it, there's like, if you didn't have this happen, then this wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened, this wouldn't have happened, you wouldn't end up at this point. And it's the same with, like, how Sir Martin ended up in the Belmont, because I think most people now, our era, we assume, you know, if you win the Derby and you win the Preakness, why wouldn't you go to the Belmont? I mean, that's that's only logical, right? Yeah. And in that era, it was not a given, because... People that wasn't a thing yet. That, right, you know, right. He had to make it a thing, and so he ended up in the Belmont for a really, you know, just mundane reason. <laughs> when I found it, I didn't know that that was gonna that piece of information was was what the reason what you know why he ended up in the Belmont. I just assumed like, while well, we shipped to to New York, the whole point was to run the Belmont anyway. No, no. They were they shipped the the stable to New York to run at the in the Belmont Spring Meet, but they were going to send for Barton to Latonia for the right. Latonia Derby. Yeah, and that was when um, a sickness hit the barn, and so they had to change their plans. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, you know, you grow up assuming like everyone wants to run in the Triple Crown. Why wouldn't you stick around and run the Belmont? Uh, no, that's not the case. <laughs> well, your point is well taken. It it really wasn't known as the Triple Crown yet. Uh, you know, no. it was it was. If you don't mind, talk talk about how that kind of developed from there, because it actually wasn't until many years later, I think, that it really kind of officially and formally became a a a thing, right? So the the idea of the Triple Crown, um, the first horse to actually run in all three races in in the same year. Which sounds goofy because they're all three-year-old stakes, but the first horse to actually do all three <clears throat> was War Cloud in 1918. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't win. He only won the Preakness, and he only won a division of the Preakness. But, you know, people hadn't gone from Louisville to Baltimore to New York before that. So once War Cloud did it, it kind of made it, okay, well, this is something. And you see the, the increase in purse money drives people to attempt it. So, you know, here's, let's, yep. win der- yep. yeah. Yeah. let's win the Derby and then, you know, okay, we'll go to the Preakness because the Preakness is like $25,000 now and the Derby is about twenty five, And, you know, to win $50,000 in two races is pretty extraordinary in that era. And then, um, and Sir Barton happened to win the Belmont just because they were in New York and he, you know, he won the Withers in between and. And the Belmont was only $10,000 that year, but, I mean, it was still a prestigious stakes race. It had been around the longest of the three. And so he did the he did the three, but they didn't call it that because they no one had ever done that, and it had never been 
you know, triple crowns had been attempted before that, but they had never consolidated in people's minds as something worth doing. So it, the concept was out there because the English had their version, and Americans were trying to find their own, but they had never been able to find a sequence that worked well enough to keep people coming back. So then you get, like, that increase in purse money between 1919 and 1930, then you and then Sir Barton winning the Derby and the Preakness, well, that, that catches people's attention first. So the double starts becoming a focus of attention. So when you start looking at the, the um, news articles from the following year, you start seeing little mentions of the double, but not the triple, just the double. And then as you get further into the 1920s, you start seeing more and more really, they're not frequent, they're infrequent depending on the, the newspapers you read, tacit um, discussions of the Triple Crown. So my earliest discovery of it was in like 1923 where I think it was a Brooklyn Daily Eagle, um, they referred to it as the Triple Crown lowercase. Lowercase, um, interesting, okay. Lowercase, yeah. not yeah. uppercase. Yeah. And, yeah. and th so, like, everyone credits, like, Charles Hatton and, you know, and then there's the argument that Brian Field did at first in the, um, the New York Times. Like, of all the newspapers I've had access to, I actually found it first in, in the, uh, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. But okay. that's, you know, that's just my, my research to this point. And then... Uh, <laughs> And then it just kind of starts gaining steam, but I'm working on Gallant Fox now, and I still haven't seen Triple Crown as a term, even though I ha I haven't, and like I, I'm still, I'm drafting, so I'm still really early in the process, mm -hmm. but just from the limited research I've done on Gallant Fox, like just from newspapers of that era, they talk about the double, you know, the Derby Preakness double, and then they talk about Sir Barton winning all three, but they don't call it the Triple Crown. That, that hasn't gained steam yet, but what I, I started um, looking ahead to Omaha in 1935, and somewhere between 1930 and 1935, the, um, it starts gaining steam okay. as a thing, like okay. the term at least, yeah. but it doesn't get its capital letters <laughs> <laughs> for a while. Just depending on what, what publication you're reading. And then um, the actual official recognition doesn't come until 1950. Even while Sir Barton's connections were reveling in their still-to-be-named success, ominous drums were beating on the horizon. If you read, you know, how they talk about him in 1919, and then that first part of the year before Man of War made his debut, yeah. you know, Sir Barton's like the greatest horse ever, <laughs> you know, with some hyperbole, obviously. And then by the last half of the year and into 1920, you see this juggernaut that is Man of War start, you know, kind of eclipsing him, but not to the point where no one paid attention to him. Just by the time Man of War is three and he's really the star of the show, people start looking around for, well, if no, there's no other three-year-old that can beat this horse. How about an older horse? And the examples they held up were Exterminator and Sir Barton. And because that, you know, by this point, Sir Barton had made his reputation enough to be, you know, this is, this is a star. This is someone, this is a horse that we look to. 
Sir Barton's post-Belmont race record in 1919 was abbreviated, unfortunately, and his four-year-old year did not get off to a serendipitous start. But he was still in the spotlight due to his remarkable success as a three-year-old, and the drumbeats only got louder. So, so uh, back to Sir Barton. Now, post the Triple Crown and uh, into his four-year-old year, he had he had his ups and downs, physical ailments, oh, yeah. and and the racing schedule. But he really, uh, in the summer of his four-year-old year, as as Man of War began to flourish. But but Sir Barton really began to flourish up in Saratoga too, and 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 actually at Fort Erie also. Yeah, his that. Um so in April of 1920, Sir Barton came back to the races after having run his last race in November of 1919, and he he had like five or six starts in basically three weeks, and it was a ridiculous amount of racing. I think what it was was because he was so precariously unsound. I mean, he he raced virtually on the on the cusp of being unsound pretty much his entire career. So I think what what they were doing was they were trying to race him into shape because they couldn't get him to work out well enough to, you know, keep him in shape. And so they would run him and then he would, you know, have some sort of injury and then they would give him a layoff and then they would run him a bunch of times again and then he would have some sort of injury and then they would lay him off. So uh, in, in May, like early May of 1920, he had wrenched an ankle and they said, okay, well, we're just going to wait. We're going to save him for Saratoga. Because now he's four and he's running in the handicaps, and they knew that at Saratoga there were all these opportunities to, you know, race him in some in some really prestigious handicaps. And he wins the um, Saratoga handicap the first day of the meet on August second in track record time in two oh one and four fifths, which is a better time than a lot of modern horses run the Derby. Right. right. By the way. Yeah. Exactly. No, no. Everybody. I was struck by that time, too, actually. Yeah. And, you know, the track wasn't it's, lightning fast either, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's just, it was it was insane. Well, and then Man of Wars, like, two weeks later, won the Travers in the same time. And, of course, when Man of War equaled the time in Travers with Sir Barton, everyone, little, like, light bulbs started going off in everybody's head. Like, ooh, we should match these two horses up. And then, like, the following week, he uh, shipped to Fort Erie and won a handicap out there, which is his only start in Canada other than the match race, even though he's owned by Canadians. Um, and then they ship him back to Saratoga, and he runs in the Merchants and Citizens handicap on August 28th, I believe. And it's a mile and three sixteenths, and he set at the time a world record for a mile and three sixteenths in beating Gnome by a nose. So it's it's very thrilling, and like everyone was was left with this, like we need to get Man of War and Sir Barton together because look at this, and it was like it was that August where he won all these handicaps. He was doing it, you know, easily at ten furlongs and setting records, and everybody, you know, that was like really his reputation maker, you know, outside of what he did the previous year, and that was where all that. And I said it in the book, it was like the match was lit by words and only by deeds would it be, you know, would it be doubt. And it was like once Sir Barton started making all these starts and making every, and everyone started taking notice, and then here's Manowar over here, like, well, he's beating everybody under the sun. You know, naturally people started talking, and they really wanted these two to meet up because in their minds, Manowar was, the best three-year-old in the country, and Sir Barton was the best older horse. 
I am sure many listeners like myself, if asked to do some word association, and given the hints Samuel Riddle and Match Race, would immediately spit out Seabiscuit. But that legendary event was not Samuel Riddle's first rodeo, so to speak, a rodeo that took place in the most unlikely of venues. You know, you know, and I have to confess, um, Jennifer, in reading your book, I, you know, I think I was probably like most readers that um, when they think of Samuel Riddle and Match Race, they think about Sea Biscuit <laughs> and War Admiral, right? And then I'm like, oh yeah. my gosh, you know, there was this Match Race too. And 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 your description of how it came about was really interesting because they both kind of lighten their their divisions on fire, if you will, right? And so the mm-hmm. drum beats, the drummers begin right for Match Race, and then you, so you've got. Name your track, you know, Belmont, Churchill Downs, right. uh, Pimlico, and yet the match race takes place in Kenilworth Park, which doesn't even exist anymore in Windsor, Ontario. It was kind of interesting, the machinations yeah. that ended up um, with the race being run there, right? It was, I thought it was weird. I, I was unsure about what the connection was between the promoter, um, AM Orphans, and the team of, behind Sir Martin, and then of course, Samuel Riddle, I was not, I was like, other than being Canadian, I didn't really know what connection the two had. And then as I was finishing the book, literally, like, the book is at the printer, not at the printer, it's it's being laid out. Okay, okay, yeah. <laughs> by the publisher, and, you know, I, I found that little nugget where A.M. Orphan had owned horses in the first part of the 1910s, and H.G. Bedwell had been his trainer. <laughs> and so, and Commander Ross had raced some of his Canadian horses at Kenilworth when it opened. Okay. So, okay. they all knew each other. This is where the whole, like, the world gets really small once you start yeah, doing a yeah, free yeah. church. Yeah, yeah, it, I did not know that connection because it had not been, none of the literature of the match race had made it obvious that these these people were all connected prior to the match race. Like, so I don't know if the turf riders were aware of it or if they just didn't make it a thing of it. But um, Orpin had, was, you know, he was like a blue-collar type racetrack owner. He wanted the racetrack to be available to the average person and not necessarily the elite. So he did not have a clubhouse or any sort of accoutrement at Kenilworth that you would, you know, consider necessary for having people with money, you yeah. know, hanging yeah. out. So he was a very egalitarian person, and he wanted to bring the match race to Canada, to Kenilworth Park, because he wanted to bring these two star horses to, you know, the people in that area. He wanted that sort of prestige for himself and for the track, and, you know, and, and you know, Commander Ross is a Canadian, too. Commander Ross wants it for Canada, because they were trying to restart their racing after having taken a hiatus for the war. So Samuel Riddle had not wanted to run Man of War against older horses at all because a he did not want to know that his horse was fallible (laughs) 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 and b he was they were at this point man of war and i think if you read dorothy ars's book on man of war it will tell you this in much more depth and detail but by this point it was they were starting to become concerned about the horse's safety because he was such a star, and there were so many different ways that someone could um, bad actors could yeah. interfere, yeah. yeah, and and sabotage them. That he was really like not, not really. I don't I don't know if I want to do this because now it would have been like 
Justify wins the Belmont, and then he doesn't race again, and everybody looks is like, why is he not going to race again? And then you look at how much it would have cost for insurance <laughs> on that horse to race again, especially knowing that his sire is gone. It's like, ah, uh, it's just too too you know risky to run the horse again. Well, Man of War was on the verge of that. That sort of like he's uninsurable and he's so valuable. Like we really can't take the risk. So it took a lot to convince. Um, Sam Riddle to be on board with it and once A.M. Orpin laid out $75,000 in a $5,000 gold cup, well Riddle was like, talking. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for listening to part one of our interview with Jennifer Kelly author of the evocative Sir Barton and the making of the Triple Crown. Tune in next week for part two when we talk about the match race, its outcome, and the twists and turns of the post-fame careers of not only Sir Barton, but his colorful connections. To this here in the telegraph For a beer I'll bite I hear his foot's all right Of course it all depends if it's red Last night I know it's bad